The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Well, good morning, Heritage. How are you guys doing today? All right, excellent, excellent. Hey, uh, before we kick things off, a couple of quick announcements. For those of you who may be visitors here and not know uh, who all everybody is, uh, my name is Jeremy. I'm one of the pastors here at Heritage, and it's my privilege to bring to you the Word of God this morning. We're going to be in John chapter 11, so if you want to start getting your Bibles ready, uh, we, we'll make our way there. <clears throat> in the meantime, uh, a couple of things that you need to know. Hey, Easter is just right around the corner. Um, April 16th is Easter Sunday, and uh, just as a kind of a side note... Uh, in times past, we figure heritage has swelled to about 12 to 1,400 people on, um, on an Easter Sunday. And that is because uh, all of you guys are connected to people, family and friends and neighbors and people who, you know, their whole experience of, of life and, and what it means to follow God or to be a Christian is to come on the holidays, to come on at Christmas time or at Easter. And uh, so knowing that, what a great opportunity to invite people who need to hear the gospel, who, who need to see beyond just maybe that narrow definition of what it means to follow Jesus. So we want to encourage you guys, definitely bring your family, bring your friends. There will be baptisms, there's going to be a barbecue, it's going to be a fantastic time. But most importantly, you will clearly hear the gospel of Jesus Christ preached. And you will hear people being offered and extended the message of salvation. And so don't miss out on that opportunity. If you've got family and friends that, that need to hear the gospel, Easter Sunday is definitely an awesome opportunity to be able to bring them. In light of that, many of you throughout the year are blessed to be a part of Heritage and to be served by the volunteers who are here and uh, the staff that makes up the, uh, the pastoral and, and ministry staff at Heritage. But we need volunteers for Easter Sunday. It's a bigger operation. It takes a lot more hands. And so we've got places for people to serve, including barbecue set up, serving... Um, and cooking, greeting, ushering, setup, teardown, security, nursery, kids' classrooms, cleanup. There's going to be a special sign-up table located in the lobby, and it's a place for you. You say, okay, the rest of the year I get to come here, and it, it just is a, a wonderful uh, place to be blessed and to receive. But Easter Sunday I have an opportunity to give and, and to serve and to care about others in our community who... Um, who are coming just for the Easter service. Uh, so we want to make sure that we serve them well. Also, baptisms being offered on Easter Sunday. Uh, you should have received a flyer when you walked in. If you didn't, there's some at the info table. And uh, that flyer is an opportunity. If you're interested in baptism, you can get signed up. Uh, and one of the pastors here at Heritage will make contact with you. We just want to talk through with you, what does that mean to be baptized? Is it just like a, a quick trip to the swimming pool or um, is, is there something more going on? And um, what does that look like to be baptized in the name of Jesus? What does that mean for you? So uh, we want to be able to connect with you. When you fill those baptism uh, papers out, you can just turn them in at the connect desk on your way out and within a week we'll be getting a hold of you. Uh, and lastly, uh, no, not lastly, next to lastly, uh, you need to know about service times coming up. So for Easter Sunday, there will be one main service at 10 o'clock a.m. in the morning. But before that, for those of you who are early risers and, and love the, the idea of coming for a sunrise service, sort of celebrating in the same way that the apostles did when they came at the break of dawn, to witness what was happening at the tomb, that the tomb was in fact empty. There is an Easter sunrise service at 6.30 a.m., and that is at the hub at our office space right next to the school. 
Um, so 943 Automation Way, just right here next to the school, for those of you who may be unfamiliar with our facilities. Um, and then there's also a Good Friday service, the Friday before Easter, and that will take place 6.30 p.m. And, and Aaron, is that here? That's here in the gymnasium. So here at 6.30 p.m. on Friday is the Good Friday service. Uh, Sunday morning at 6.30 a.m. is the sunrise service. And then at 10 o'clock will be one service complete with barbecue, baptisms, and the gospel being preached clearly for everyone to hear. So make sure that uh, you're aware of those things. Lastly, but certainly not least, coming up in the fall is our In the Footsteps of the Apostle Paul tour. Um, this coming fall, we are going to be taking a voyage as, uh, as a church for those who sign up to walk in the footsteps of the Apostle Paul on his missionary journeys. And we're not going to obviously be able to hit all of the places, but we're going to hit a good number of them because they, they tend to be sort of centrally located. So um, if you are interested in that, uh, that trip and you want to be a part of that, you want to sign up for that, Next Sunday, right after the second service, you can join Pastor Jeff for an informational meeting. There will be pizza provided. I'm assuming that's going to be over at the Hub. Um, and it's a great opportunity for you to ask any questions that you need to ask and kind of get familiar with what the agenda is. And um, right now, as it stands, the plan is for Jeff and for myself to be teaming up. And we'll be tag teaming um, and teaching throughout each of the, the steps of the Apostle Paul um, through, uh, through the Mediterranean there. So make sure if you're interested in that and uh, you want to be a part of that, that you come to that informational meeting. So that wraps up announcements for today. We're going to be in John chapter 11, and let's pray. Lord, you gave us a story of a sower who went out to sow. And the seed of the word of the kingdom was scattered abroad. Some of it fell by the wayside. Some of it fell into the thorns. Some of it fell into rocky soil. Some of it fell into good soil. And Lord, all of those soils were in competition for the same seed. But only one of those soils bore fruit. Because of hard-heartedness, your word could not penetrate in the rocky soil. Because of the lust of other things and the things of this world, your word was choked out in that that fell among the thorns. And because of the birds of the air who came and ripped off the people you love and stole away that truth from them, the seed that fell by the wayside was fruitless. So God, we ask by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would protect us from those pitfalls that this morning our hearts would be tilled up and ready to receive, that we would be expectant in receiving your word. Lord, that faith would be mixed together in our hearts with a deep love for you and that the word would this morning produce fruit in us. That we would be not like those who are hear the word only and it produces nothing in them but those who hear and begin to live out of that reality who are changed by it so God have your way in us teach and instruct us we pray in the name of Jesus amen amen well, Pastor Jeff would have uh, loved to have been with us this morning. Um, uh, how many of you guys know that Jeff is a Tar Heel fan? You guys know that? 
I, he rarely talks about it, so, um, you know, it, it might have escaped you. Uh, but one of his bucket list, one of his big dreams has always been to be able to go to a Tar Heel game uh, in the Final Four. And he actually ended up teaming up with some guys from Rogue Valley Fellowship, Kenner Gottsman, and some of the staff from Rogue Valley Fellowship were already headed to the game. And he found tickets online and was able to get to the Final Four. So yesterday, he was sitting in nosebleed seats, way, 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 still watching it on the Jumbotron. <laughs> so it's funny, you get that close and you still have to watch it on TV. Um, but he's there with the pastoral staff from, uh, from RVF. And yesterday, he got to watch the Tar Heels win against uh, Oregon. And so I'm not sure if that makes him faithful or if he's betraying us. I, I don't know which one it is, but uh, I'll let you guys sort that out. Anyway, um, he, this morning he went to uh, a local church there and has worshiped and he walked away saying, he just sent out a group text to everybody saying, man, that was so awesome to go and worship in, in this place. And uh, I walked away loving Jesus more, you know. So what an awesome thing to have our pastor submitted and surrendered to the word of God, even while he's away from home, still seeking him and being blessed by the same spirit that is now working in us. Amen? Amen. Hey, um, John chapter 11, to kind of set the stage here a little bit, <clears throat> I should give you a little bit of the backstory. Coming up is Easter weekend. And uh, knowing that, there's always sort of a ramp up until uh, the day of Resurrection Sunday where we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. And in that ramp up time, what we kind of try to do is think ahead on the teaching and, and, and try and let the story sort of unfold itself. So the Sunday before Resurrection Sunday, who knows what that is? Palm Sunday, okay, which is the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. And then we have Good Friday, right? And then Resurrection Sunday. And so Jeff said, hey, in light of that, those events kind of coming sequentially, maybe you could, instead of sticking with Colossians, maybe you could kind of set the stage for or frame talking about the death and resurrection of Jesus uh, this Sunday. So that's the, that's the task I've been given to do. My text this morning is the story of Lazarus. Now, it's interesting because this is uh, shortly before the triumphal entry. This is right before Jesus goes into Jerusalem. And, um, and, and, and there's, this story is included in John's gospel. Uh, now, the synoptics are the three gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke that are very similar in content, but John's gospel is more thematic. He's looking, he's looking at specific themes through his experience with Jesus and recounting those themes to us in order that faith might be stirred, that we might believe in Jesus, that he is the Son of God who died and gave his life for us, that he was in fact raised from the dead, that he did ascend and is now sitting at the right hand of the Father and is coming back to judge the living and the dead. Okay, John wants us to get that. He wants us to understand that reality. And so, uh, in this passage, he is sort of looking back over his experience with Jesus. Isn't it funny how when you look back, certain things begin to emerge? Certain things begin to stand up? I mean, some of it, it can be like regrets, right? We go... Oh, man, I, if I had known that that investment would be so sour, I wouldn't have made that. Or if I had known that that relationship would have been so ugly, I would have never set foot into that. If I had only known that this would happen or that would happen, then, you know, I would have, I would have made different choices. And then some of that can be redemptive, too. You look back and you go, oh, man, I can see how God's hand was leading and guiding all along the way. I can see the sovereignty of God at work in my life. You know, um, it's interesting. When I was about 10 to 12 years old, I can't remember exactly how old I was. Um, I, was a, I went to a church in Cave Junction called Bridgeview Community Church. And it was, uh, you know, they had just kind of revamped the building. It was a historic church. It was built in the 1800s. 
and they, there was a revival that sort of broke out there for a little bit, and the church was swelling inside, and so they built a, a big building, and then a new pastor took over, and then, you know, things kind of dwindled down. That's the way things seemed to go. Uh, but then as it was being built, out, built back out, this new pastor was from a charismatic persuasion. And so every, you know, once in a while, he would have guest speakers come through, these guys that would come through, and they would say, you know, um, different things. They, sometimes they set up a tent in the middle of town, sort of the tent revival thing, the holiness movement was sort of left over. And um, so every, we would have these guys kind of roll through our church at this uh, community church where the charismatic pastor had taken over. Um, and one such Sunday, um, a, a special guest speaker came through, and I don't remember his name, but I'm sure my mom could tell it to you. Uh, he comes through, and he's got like the assembly line up front. You guys know what I'm talking about? Maybe you've seen it on TV, or maybe you've, you've been around it, if you've been in the, involved in the charismatic movement and all. And, you know, the assembly line really is like, it's like a factory and people come through, and you slap them in the forehead. They fall over, and the catchers catch them. You lay them down, and you move on to the next guy. You slap him in the forehead, and he falls down. That, that's kind of the thing that was happening, right? Now, I'm making light of that, uh, but I know that that has heavy meaning for those that are involved in the charismatic movement. Um, and what I'm about to say may, may push against that a little. Um, so I, I got up, I'm 12 years old, and I didn't get saved till I was 19. I get up and I get in the line, I'm kind of wait, waiting my way through the line, I'm waiting to get my token slap to the forehead, and, you know, sort of buckle under that pressure, at least, maybe, maybe sometimes they'll do, they don't want to do the full slap, they just kind of do the big, long push, you know, where you're kind of just like, uh, until you fall over. I'm, I'm expecting that, because that's what I've seen. And this guy gets up to me, and there's music and a bunch of stuff happening, and he just he shuts it all down. He says, guys, stop, stop. The Lord is telling me that this young man has a calling on his life for ministry, and we need to pray for him, that God will preserve him. And so he gathered the elders of the church and gathered some men around me, and they laid hands on me and prayed for me. Now, I was, like I said, 10, 12 years old, didn't know the Lord, didn't know that I didn't know the Lord. I, I got baptized probably like 45 times. <laughs> and the reason that I did is that, one, nobody really walked through it with me. Or they were just happy somebody was getting in the water. But two, two, I was like convinced the last time didn't work. I'm, I'm still sinning. <laughs> right? There's still a lot of bad stuff happening in my life. And, I, you know... Let, dunk me again. <laughs> right? It didn't work. Now, I, I, my parents, you know, they love to rehearse that. My mom, she treasured those things in her heart and continued to tell those, that story at family gatherings and things like that. I, I didn't really pay much attention to it other than the fact that early on there was a call on my life, right? So in 97, I got saved. God brought me to himself. By 98, 99, I was in the school of ministry. And in 2000, I got married and planted a church back in my hometown because God had told me specifically, I want you to go back to your hometown, to the place where you came from, and tell them what great things God has done for you. So I uh, was out there, planted a church out there, was ministering out there for probably nine years, when all of a sudden we merged with Bridgeview Community Church. And I found myself sitting in the pulpit at the same church that when I was a 10 to 12-year-old boy, a man of God had said, this young man has a calling on his life. <laughs> you know, it's experiences like that. You look back and you see God's hand in your life and you go, man, I cannot believe this. Nobody could have predicted, I guarantee you, you talk to anybody that I graduated high school with and say, hey, did you know that Jeremy became a pastor? They'd be like, what? <laughs> you are kidding me. But I could see, looking back now, and I didn't notice it at the time, but looking back, I could see 
that God was really the one calling the shots, that he, no matter how I pushed against him, no matter how I rebelled against him, that he was ultimately corralling me towards himself. Now, I still have choices to make in that, don't I? But eventually, God pinned me. Now, as we look at the text today, John the Apostle is looking back over his his experiences with Jesus. And he's picking specific themes up. And the reason he's picking those themes up is he's looking back over his experience. He goes, this was not accidental. This was purposeful. Everything that was happening was on purpose. I was just sort of existing in the midst of it. And, you know, Jesus is walking around and he heals that guy and opens that guy's eyes. And, you know, water is being turned into wine and all these miracles are happening. And I'm just like rolling with it and everything is great. But as he looks back after the resurrection, he looks back over his experience with Jesus and he goes, man, everything was on purpose. It all was rich. Every teaching he gave, every miracle that he did, every action he took, every place that he went, it was meaningful, it was purposeful. And he sees the divine orchestration of God the Father in it all. And so we pick up this story right before Easter, Jesus is about to go to the cross. He's about to enter Jerusalem, and conflict is going to erupt. And this is one of the central reasons that Jesus gets crucified is this moment right here. So let's dive in. Now, a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, sent to Jesus, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. And the disciples said to him, Rabbi, the the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Because in the previous chapter, the Jews had taken up stones and were going to kill Jesus at one point. Because he said, I and the Father are one, in chapter 10, verse 30. And they said, are you going back to this again? In verse 9, Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the light, he stumbles because the light is not in him. In other words, hey, while there's daylight, we should get some stuff done, right? That's kind of the idea. After saying these things, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. So the disciples said to him, well, Lord, if he's, if he's fallen asleep, he will recover. Oh, good. He's resting, Lord. That's awesome. Now he can, you know, he'll feel better after he gets some sleep. Verse 13, now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he meant taking rest in sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there. So that you might believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twins, said to his fellow disciples, Well, let us all go, that we may die with him. (laughs) Don't you love Thomas? He's like the king of sarcasm. He's like, oh, I I guess we're all going to go die together. So, yeah. Cheerio. We're going to take a look at four things from this entire chapter, and I'm going to do my best to to not keep you long. 
uh, as is my habit. Um, but these four things are, are, are going to walk us through sort of what is taking place here. First of all, we're going to look at the purpose of Jesus' delay, the reason for Jesus' delay. Then we're going to look at the response of Jesus to death. And then the reality that Jesus anticipates. And lastly, the response to the resurrection. The response to the resurrection. So starting with this first piece here, the purpose or the reason for Jesus' delay. That he hears that Lazarus, whom he loves, is ill. Why doesn't he jump at that? He just hangs out. Why, why does he wait? Why does he, why does he stay? I mean, I mean, clearly the text tells us Jesus loved Mary and Martha and Lazarus. Even Martha and Mary, when they send messengers to Jesus, they say, the one whom you love is ill. So Jesus just waits. He delays. Why is that? What is he doing just waiting there, just delaying? Doesn't he care? Well, the reason for his delay is, first of all, foreknowledge. Foreknowledge. Jesus knew that Lazarus would die and that he would raise him. I mean, if we look at what Jesus says to his disciples there, Verse 14, Lazarus has died, and for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there, so that you might believe. But let us go to him. And then in verse 4, when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It's for the glory of God, so that the Son of God might be glorified through it. He says, I know that Lazarus is going to die, and I am waiting for that moment in which he will die. And through his death, the Son of God is going to be glorified and the Father is going to be glorified. And I'm going to wait until he's dead. Now that may seem to us maybe cold-hearted. Okay, does Lazarus matter in the equation? I'm assuming that death isn't all that cozy. Right? Like everybody goes, I want to be in heaven. I just want to have to die to get there. Right? But Jesus waits. Because of his foreknowledge, he knows that he is going to raise Lazarus. He waits because of his foreknowledge, and he waits for the faith building of the disciples, for faith building. See, Jesus knew that the miracle that he was about to perform was necessary for the faith of the disciples. It was necessary, why? Because a week from now, Jesus is going to be nailed to a cross. Because in the not-too-distant future, they're going to look at their friend. They're going to see that their friend has been arrested, brutally beaten, savagely whipped, nailed to a cross, pierced with a spear. Blood and water will come out. They will help pull his body lifeless from the cross. They will wrap it in linen. They will take it to a cave, and they will put it inside of the tomb and roll a stone over the cover, over the opening to that tomb. And they will feel in that moment all the pains of death and its finality. They will in that moment experience all the sorrow of a dream that has ended. They've left houses and families and jobs and careers to follow this person that they believe is the king of Israel. They've left to follow him. And now they're going to see that dream just explode. And Jesus knows they need to be strengthened in 
their faith. So, he builds their faith through what is happening. Giving the disciples confidence in the power of God. Bringing glory to the Son and the Father together in their power over death. You see, he says in in verse 4, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God might be glorified through him. Through it. In other words, I'm going to demonstrate through this miracle that the Son of God has power over life and death. That he has the authority to say to what is dead, live, and it lives. That's the authority that Jesus has. And he knows his disciples need to know that. They need to be confident in that. He's preparing his disciples for what is to come after his death. Pick it up again in verse 17. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus has already been in the tomb for four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So lots of people had gathered. It was sort of like a, a wake type of environment, though he had been placed in the tomb. Others are helping them mourn and process this grief. <coughs> so when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. So Martha hears Jesus is coming. She runs down the road, flip-flops, flipping, as she makes her way through the dust of this little tiny town of Bethany. Verse 21, and Martha, when she meets Jesus, she said to Jesus, Lord, if, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. So Martha said to him, I, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day, or at the end of the age, when everybody gets raised again from the dead. I know that he'll, he'll be raised again from the dead in that moment. And then Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And then he asked the question, Martha, do you believe this? And she said to him, yes, Lord, I, I, I believe that you are the Christ or the Messiah, the promised king, the one that God said would deliver his people forever and ever, the one who would occupy a throne that could never be unoccupied by him again, the one who would establish his holy city forever and ever. I believe that you are that one, the Messiah, the Son of God who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went. So she, she makes that declaration of faith in who Jesus is. And she, she leaves and she goes over to Mary. Now, now we look at Mary here. She called her sister Mary saying in private, Hey, the teacher is here and he's calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now, Jesus had not yet come to the village, but he was still in the place where Martha had met him. And when the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out. They followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. So they said, okay, let's go with her. You you know how that works? Like when somebody's going through a great loss and friends rally around, and they go, okay, we're going to be with you in the middle of this. They, They follow along. Now, verse 32. When Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, She fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Notice she says the exact same thing that her sister said. Now, I'm I'm wondering 
I think maybe they had that conversation in the, the four days that Lazarus had been buried. I think maybe they, they, they had that conversation. I know he loves us. Why, why wasn't he here? Why, why, why didn't he do anything? So it's the question that is on the top of their minds. If you had been here, our brother wouldn't be dead. We gave you notice a long while ago. Where have you been? We told you about a sickness. Why didn't you show? Here it is, four days after he's dead, and now you're coming. Lord, if you had been here, Notice the response of Jesus. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was greatly moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And in that shortest verse in the Bible, if you've been around for a while, you know this one. Easiest verse to memorize right here. And Jesus wept. But think about this for a moment. Think about the reality of this. This is, this is God incarnate. This is the one who knows the end from the beginning. This is the one who breathed the stars into existence. This is the one who shaped and formed Adam's body. And then placed him in the Garden of Eden, who breathed life into his nostrils. And there he sits on his way to a tomb, shoulders bouncing, sobbing in the moment, brokenhearted. So the Jews said, verse 36, oh, see how he loved him. Some of them said, and here comes the accusation again. Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Where was he? Why wasn't he here? As we explore the response of Jesus to death, there's two things I want you to take note of. First of all, Jesus is confident in his authority over death. And second of all, Jesus is compassionate to those who are suffering because of death. First of all, he's confident. He never feels the need to explain himself. Now, I don't know about you, but that's one of the frustrating things about God. <laughs> I want reasons. I want to know why. Why did you do this? Or, or if, it, if it's not you, why didn't you stop it? Why didn't you prevent it? Why didn't you do something? Why didn't you intervene? But he never answers why. Three times the question comes up. If you had been here, our brother would not have died. If you had been here, our brother would not have died. This man opened the eyes of the blind. Surely he could have saved his friend from dying. He never answers why he wasn't there. He only gives a response as to what he will do in the face of that tragedy. Or how he will redeem it. He asserts his authority over death when the first question comes. If you had been here, my brother would not have died. He said, your brother will rise again. She goes, oh, I know, I know. He will in the last day at the, at the resurrection when everybody gets written. He says, no, no, no. I am the resurrection and the life. And if any man believes in me, though he dies, he will live. And he says to Martha, do, do you believe this? He says to the crowd that's doubting, show me where the tomb is. We'll get to that part in a minute. Let me show you what I do in the face of death. Let me, let me show you what I'm capable of. Let me show you my authority over death. Death cannot 
withhold me from the king of all the universe? So he never answers why he didn't prevent death, only how he will respond to it. He asserts his authority over death, and then he asks for the disciples and for all the people there to trust him in the face of death. Remember what he says to Martha? Martha, do you, do you believe this? That I'm the resurrection and the life? Do you, do you believe that? She has to make a choice, right? Can I trust him in the middle of this? She says, yes, I believe. Believe that you're, you're the one that God is sending to redeem the world. You're the one who God has promised. I believe that. And then she runs to get Mary so that Mary can be comforted. So Jesus is confident in his authority over death. But not only that, he's compassionate towards those who are suffering because of death. Notice, number one, he, he comforts with truth to Martha. See, Martha's makeup, her personality, what she needed was the, the reassurance of truth to anchor herself to. And so Jesus says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He gives to her truth in that moment. Now, interesting, Mary comes along, and Mary needs something completely different. She doesn't just need truth. She needs his presence, his compassion, his understanding. And so he responds to her, not with the same canned answer he had last time, but he responds to her differently. What does he do? He breaks down. He weeps. He comforts Martha with the truth, and he comforts Mary with empathy. For Mary, Jesus' suffering with her was a comfort to her. And Jesus weeps. Even though he already knows what he will do. Now this is the greatest mystery of all time. And this aspect of God's nature is incredible to me. I mean, think about it. In, in about 15 minutes, he's going to call into the tomb and raise Lazarus from the dead. Right? Well, we all know that's coming, Right? So, I mean, he could look at Martha and Mary and the crowd that is there. He could say, hey, um, <laughs> why are you guys crying? It's not that, I, I got a plan. Everything's going to be fine. I don't know what you're so concerned about. <laughs> Wipe the tears. You know, he could have Joel Osteened it. Big smile on his face. Hey, just think positive thoughts. <laughs> right? It's, it could have been what he did. He knows he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. But you know what he does? He weeps. If you think about this, this could be the response of God in every situation. We could say, oh God, I'm, I'm so upset about this cancer that's come upon me, or I'm so upset about this circumstance that I'm going through, or this financial issue, or I'm, I'm so concerned about this or that thing, and, and, and God could look at us and go, I don't know what your problem is. I mean, didn't I tell you that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love him and to those who are the called according to his purpose? So, you know, buck up. I don't know why you guys are whining. But that's not what he does. The eternal God humbles himself and condescends to be in time with us. He experiences our sorrows, carries our griefs. He understands us like your hurt is in my heart. And I'm sorry that you're hurting right now. I feel it too. I'm broken with you. I mean, this is an incredible thing that God would humble himself to relate to us on this level, even though he already knows how he's going to redeem everything that we go through in life. He never once goes, hey, I don't know what your problem is. 
He doesn't slap bumper sticker Christianity on an open wound. He doesn't put band-aids over bleeding arteries. You guys ever seen that? A child dies. In the face of not knowing what to say, people say something like, well, God has a plan. Man. What's the response of that parent in that moment? Tell me. Tell me what God's plan is in the face of this. Explain to me how God is good in the face of this. My heart is broken. My life is ruined. Don't slap a Romans 8.28 sticker on me and say everything's fine. No, that's not how our God is. The same God that authored Romans 8.28, that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose, is the same one who in the same book said that we're to weep with those who weep. He enters into our pain. He enters into our sorrow. And he is confident in his ability to redeem and compassionate in our suffering. God humbles himself to meet with us. Verse 38. Jesus makes his way to the tomb. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, uh, by this time, there, there will be an odor, for he's been dead for four days. And Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Again, he reminds her of the truth. He anchors her to the truth. That's what she needed in that moment. So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes, and he said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he'd said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who died came out. His hands and his feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said unto them, unbind him. And let him go. The third thing we're going to look at here is not only the purpose of, or the reason for Jesus' delay, but the response of Jesus to death and the reality that Jesus anticipates. Okay? The reality that Jesus anticipates. Two things to take note of. Note Jesus' response to the sayings. And then note Jesus' response to the settings. First of all, in verse 4, Jesus, when he hears about Lazarus being ill, he says, this illness does not lead to death. It's for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. And then in verse 15, he says to his disciples, and for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. Then in verse 23, he says, your brother will rise. In verses 25 through 26, whoever believes in me shall never die. In verses 32 through 35, Jesus gets emotional and he weeps beside the tomb of Lazarus. I want you to notice something. Note Jesus' response to the saints. Every time news comes to him about Lazarus, or every time there is a question about his intention through this, his whole single-minded thought is that he will raise Lazarus from the dead. And that that miracle will demonstrate something to Jesus' followers that they need to know. That death cannot hold him. 
He wants them to understand this. He wants them to receive that. And so every time he's met with this question of, 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 of what will you do in the face of death, he says, death is not an issue. Death is not an issue. It's for the glory of God that I'm doing this. Everything is going to be all right because I'm going to show you something about myself through this situation. Why? Because a couple of weeks from now, you're going to look back on this moment right here beside the tomb of Lazarus. You're going to remember him coming out of the grave and me saying to him, unbind him. You're going to remember that. And when you do, when you remember that, you're going to know all along this was my plan. This was not an accident. This is how I would save the world. Not only note his response to the sayings, but Jesus, in anticipating his own death and resurrection, notice his response to the setting. In verse 38, we find that Jesus comes to the tomb and was deeply moved again. He came to the tomb, and it was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Does that sound familiar to anybody? This, this miracle's on purpose. Are you starting to see that? When Jesus sees the tomb, he is moved emotionally again. The text notes the, the details. It's a cave with a stone in front. And then Jesus responds in that moment to, in prayer out loud. Not just prayer to the Father, but prayer so that everybody else can hear this conversation between him and the Father. What's the prayer? Father, thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. I want all these people around me, I want them to know it too. Thank you that you hear me. When he is about to call Lazarus out from the tomb and out of death, he stops for just a moment to say thanks to God to say thanks to his father that he has the power over life and death. He says, I want everybody to know that you're the one who's really in control here. And not only that you hear me in this moment with Lazarus, but in, this, in that moment where, where I am suffering, in that moment, the night before the cross, when I am on my knees, sweating drops of blood, that you hear me then. In that moment where I'm nailed to the cross and I cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That you hear me then. That I shall not die, but I shall be raised from the dead now live note Jesus' response to the setting when he sits at the tomb of Lazarus he prays and give thanks, gives thanks to his father and lastly we'll see the response of others to the resurrection Jesus anticipates his death. In other words, Jesus knows this. this isn't just about Lazarus' death. It's about his own death and the death of every person who has ever lived. Death is not the end of the story. He will raise the dead. Now, in verse 45, we get sort of the rest of the story. Now, many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, they believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs, and if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, you don't know anything at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. 
He did not say this of his own accord, but because he was the high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not only for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who were scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Now notice the response to the resurrection. First, the first response is belief. Verse 45, many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary had seen what he did. There's the miracle. Then how did they respond? Belief. What did they believe in? Did they believe in the miracle? What's the text say? Verse 45. They believed in what? Somebody tell me. They believed in him. They believed in him. They didn't just believe in the miracle. They believed in him. They, they said, okay, whoa, 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 wait a minute here. Uh, okay, so we saw that you, you open blind eyes. That was just a couple chapters ago. Uh, we, we see that you caused the lame to walk. You, we, we remember the scriptures, specifically from Isaiah, that, that talk about the, the year when the Lord comes, how the oppressed will be set free. You laid claim to that ministry. You said that, that that's what's happening. It's this sort of jubilee year, which, by the way, a little fun fact for you, for those of you who want to track it down, a lot of the ministry took place in Jesus' life during the year of Jubilee. Really kind of fun to track that back. As a side note there, for those of you who enjoy more study. But they, they say, okay, we, we see all these Old Testament scriptures that, that, that when the Messiah comes and his kingdom is established, and what is going to happen is that the, the mountains will flow with new wine, and you make water into wine. We see that you open the eyes of the blind, the lame to walk, but but you raised the dead? Are you serious? All of a sudden, they go, oh man, this king is like no other. He is the anointed, the Mashiach. That's what Messiah means, anointed one. He's the anointed one by God who is bringing freedom to his people, even freedom from death. And they believe. They believe not just in the event of Lazarus being raised, but they believed in the message of the kingdom that Jesus is the king above all kings and that his kingdom will have no end. The message of the gospel is mixed with faith and they don't put their trust just in what he can do, but they put their trust in who he is. The second response to the resurrection is unbelief. In the story of Lazarus and the rich man, there's another Lazarus in the Bible, for those of you who don't know that. In Luke chapter 16, we were told that this beggar, Lazarus, laid at the gate of, of uh, a rich man's house, and they both died, and they end up in, um, in Sheol, in this, this place after death, right? And there's a place of comfort called Abraham's bosom, and there's this other place, uh, which is a place of torment. And the rich man ends up in the place of torment, and Lazarus ends up in the place of comfort. And the rich man says to Abraham, he says, hey, Father Abraham, if you, if you could just get Lazarus to, to dip his finger in water and drop something in my mouth, I'm just, I'm suffering over here so profusely. And Abraham says, no, nah, it doesn't work like that. There's a giant gulf between us. Okay? He says, okay, well, then, then send Lazarus back. I've got five brothers, and I don't want them to end up here in this place. And he says, no, your brothers have the law and the prophets. If they don't believe through that, then neither would they believe if someone were to be raised from the dead. Now, check this out. Even if Lazarus, in that story of Lazarus and the rich man, came back from the dead and witnessed to the brothers from the teaching of Jesus, that wouldn't cause them to believe. They wouldn't believe. Why? Because it's not mixed with faith. There's no trust. The Pharisees had all the scriptures in the world. But they still denied Jesus. They, they, they hear the story of the resurrection of Lazarus and they go, oh, man. Um, well, I guess we should kill this guy so he doesn't stir up more trouble. 
There's going to be a revolt against the Romans. We're all going to suffer. We're all going to die. They know all the same scriptures, but they will not come under the authority of Jesus. They will not allow him to be king. They think they're still in control and that it's up to them to pull all the strings. Here's the truth. Belief in facts and information are not the only thing that God longs for. Listen. Simply because you agree with the facts of the resurrection and the death of Jesus does not make you Christian. You know who's got the best doctrine in the world? Satan. He knows exactly what the gospel will do. But is Satan saved? No. Why? Because he's in rebellion against the authority of that king. There may be some in here who find themselves in one of those two categories. Belief. Oh man, I believe. Okay, well then, great. If this is true, then what matters? Everything. And then there might be some those that, some, there might be those who don't believe. And I would just say, Hey, listen, having the facts and the information, that doesn't do you any good. Maybe you're in here and you would say, I've always agreed with Christianity, but you've never put your trust in Jesus to allow him to lead your life. You never come under his authority. I would just say to you, today if you hear his voice, do not push him away. Don't harden your heart. This is the moment of salvation. Now is the accepted time. And there's this third party who is present, and that's those who are curious. They respond with curiosity. Last few verses here, we'll finish up. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but they went from there, the region near the wilderness, to a town called Ephraim, where he stayed with the disciples. Now, the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem, before the Passover, to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think? Think that it'll come to the feast at all? They're just curious. Huh, we've heard all this stuff about Jesus. What's he really like? And I wonder if he's even going to show up. You think he's scared of the Pharisees or whoever? This third crowd present said, let's wait and see. If you're here this morning and you're just curious, you, you, you landed here and you don't really understand this whole Christian thing, but you're just trying to figure it out. I would say, keep coming. It may take two times. It took two times for the disciples, didn't they? They saw the resurrection of Lazarus, still didn't believe, and then when they saw the resurrection of Jesus, they go, okay, now I get it. So it may take more than one time of being exposed to the gospel, but keep coming, keep seeking, keep knocking. Because it's God's desire to save. Listen, for the disciples, you fast forward a week from, or a couple of weeks from this moment, on the other side of Jesus' resurrection, everything changes for them. How does it change? What did it mean for them? It meant that all that they had given up to follow Jesus was now worth it. It meant that everything that he had taught them wasn't just good advice, it was the word of God. It meant that their lives had a great purpose, not just the occupying of space. It meant that the relationship between God and man just became more intimate and that God could be known personally. It meant that the God of the Old Testament really was a God of love. It meant that heaven is real and so is hell. It meant that God was calling all the world to repent and receive the forgiveness of their sins by allowing Jesus' punishment on the cross to be a substitute for theirs. It meant that God had now made himself available through the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit to all men who Jesus pays for their sin. It meant that the prayers that they offer really do get heard, that the sick do get healed, that the lame do walk, that the blind do see, that the dead indeed are raised. It meant that he is ruling on a throne in heaven. It meant that he's coming back again to take up his throne on earth. It meant that the king who died on Friday is alive forevermore. And it meant that one day there will be a new heaven and a new earth 
and we will all live happily ever after. And it meant that if you don't know him, he's calling you today, saying, change your mind. Change your mind about me. Let me be king. Receive my love and forgiveness and know me personally. I wish I had something new to tell you guys. But this is the same gospel that's been saving lives for 2,000 years. Amen. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this reminder. And as we anticipate Easter week and the power of the resurrection, God, build in us excitement and faith and expectancy to know that you are going to move and work among your people, that you're going to bring salvations, not just at heritage, but all throughout the valley, that you are going to awaken people, not just to the facts of the resurrection, but to what the implications of the resurrection are, that if you're raised from the dead, then everything you said is true, that you really are the king, that you really are coming again. Bless your people now as they go. Fill them with your spirit. May your words be planted deep in their hearts. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a wonderful, wonderful day.